In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. God willing, today we're going to continue studying uh, in the book of 1 Kings. Um, last time we had started chapter 8, um, well we did chapter 7, and we did part of chapter 8 up to verse 11. So I'm going to just read uh, the first 11 verses from 1 Kings chapter 8, so we can kind of remind ourselves <coughs> of, of the chapter, and then we'll can continue from there. So... Um, the main theme here in this chapter is after King Solomon had completed the building of the temple and the furnishing of the temple, they are now uh, bringing in the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. And then God appears in the form of this cloud inside of the temple. Okay, And so this is what's going to be described here in the first few verses, this dedication of the temple. It says, Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel, and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the Ark, this is the Ark of the Covenant, then they brought up the Ark of the Lord, the Tabernacle of Meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the Tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him were with him before the Ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. So they were making all these sacrifices. Then the priests brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. This is in the Holy of Holies. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the Ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Okay, so um, we, we spoke last time about how this cloud in Hebrew, that it was called the Shekinah. And this Shekinah is um, kind of, was seen as the presence of God. And here, the presence of God was manifested in this cloud. But there were other times where in the Hebrew tradition and the rabbinic literature, um, it was seen that the presence of God present in this Shekinah would be present with people at different times. For instance, when people would be studying the Torah or during a time of prayer or these during these various times, there would be the Shekinah that would, ex that would be with the people who are uh, praying or doing some kind of godly activity. So here, this dedication of the temple uh, is, is after the building of the temple according to the instructions of God and after all of these hundreds of thousands of sacrifices. Um, that were made, God is now showing that he accepts the work that was done by the people, that he is present here, and that this is truly his house, okay? Solomon now, seeing this, okay, so it says, Then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. 
Okay, so he's saying this place, this house, okay, is the house of God. And who is it who built it? Of course, God is the builder, but he's the one who instructed King Solomon to build it. Okay, and he is going to dwell with the people forever. Remember in the Old Testament, okay, unlike the New Testament, in the, in the New Testament, we've received the gift of the Holy Spirit and we perceive God in a spiritual way without having to see physically. Okay, without having to see physically. Whereas in the Old Testament, the people always wanted to see something physical. So for instance, when we come to the church, we believe that God is present in the church. We see this is the house of God. But we aren't expecting miracles to happen. Like we're not expecting, you know, that we walk in and we see uh, apparitions and visions and angels flying around and this stuff, right? Because we believe it by faith, right? By faith, we believe that God dwells in his house. By faith, we believe that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. You know, but this is all taken by faith. Whereas, whereas in the Old Testament, here God wanted to show, truly, this is my house. Truly, I'm here in this place. So he allowed himself to be seen in this way, right, in this cloud. So, so here Solomon is saying, I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell forever. And this is um, the greatest thing about the house of God. You know, many people come to the house of God, like come to the church for, for different reasons, right? Some people come because their friends are here, and so they want to come and see their friends. Some people come because they have a duty or responsibility, like a service that they've been assigned to do in the church, and so they come because I have to come for the church. Some people come maybe because they're kids, they want their kids to attend Sunday school, and I want my kids to learn, right? So I, I come. Some people come because they want to participate in some kind of activity, right, that the church is planning, or because the church is providing food for people, and so that motivates them to come. There's a lot of reasons why people might come to the church, right? But the reason we should be coming to the church, right, is that this is the house of God, that God is present. And it doesn't mean that God is not present elsewhere. It doesn't mean that God existed only here in the temple and that God was not accessible or existing outside the temple. No, he was in both places. But this place was consecrated to his presence, right? There's a difference between, yes, God is present in all places, versus this is a, a place that is consecrated to the presence of God, which means that nothing else is permitted in. Nothing else is allowed in. This is why, like, we wouldn't come to the church and listen to secular music right even some secular music that might not be bad it might it might not be like a sinful music but it's just something that's not present something that we don't do here right like i always say like i encourage people even like the kind of clothing that they're going to wear when they come to the church that it not include like logos or or markings or things from things that are secular outside not because there's anything wrong with those things right it's just that when we come to the house of god we want everything to be related to god Right? When we look at the icons, the icons are related to God. We don't put up icons of like beautiful landscapes, for instance. Right? Nothing wrong with landscapes. Right? But we, we put icons that remind us of God's presence. Everything in the church reminds us of God's presence. Like whether it be from the dress code, whether it be from like the sacraments, of course, the teachings, the things we talk about, even the activities that we do, everything is revolving around the presence of God. So when we come to the the house of god and why also that 
the Sabbath day in the Old Testament, consecrated as being the day of the Lord, consecrated as being the, the holy day where everyone goes and worships and offers sacrifice and does not do any other work, right? The idea of I'm not doing any other work, not because those other works are sinful, not because it's wrong to work, right? But there is a consecrated time where, where we do not do anything else, right? And this is here, what is the idea of the house of God? The house of God is a place where there is nothing else, right? It is only God. And we take away from our minds all the imagery, um, all of the thoughts, all of the distractions, all of the other things that are in the world, which otherwise might not be wrong to do, but this is not the time for it. This is not the place for it. This is why we call the church to be like heavenly, right? Just like you wouldn't go to heaven and expect there to be secular things. Like you wouldn't go to heaven and expect there to be like, you know, like sports events. And you wouldn't go to heaven and expect there to be, you know, a marketplace. You wouldn't go to heaven and expect there to be things that are not wholly consecrated to God. No one in heaven is doing anything that's like not God-focused, right? So the church is the same. This is also why like when Christ came to the temple and he saw that the, the people were buying and selling, he became so upset. And he says, you've turned like the house of God into this common place. You've made it to be like any other place, right? And that was the problem, is that the people had turned the house of God to make it into like any other place. What other place is God going to appear like this in the cloud, right? Like you, do, you don't go to Walmart and then God appears in the cloud, right, in Walmart, right? There's nothing wrong with Walmart, right? But it is not a place consecrated to God. And so, so here, everything we do is consecrated to God. And this was the greatest thing about the house of God. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, and with his hand has fulfilled it, saying, Since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple. But your son, who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David, and sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised, and I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So Solomon is remembering history. He's saying, my father David is the one who wanted to build the ark. And God was pleased that it was in his heart that he wanted to build the ark. But at the same time, God told him that this is not the time now, not in your generation, not under your uh, uh, like w the dur during your kingdom, is this going to happen? But it is going to happen in the time of your son, who of course is King Solomon. Okay, so 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 it was all planned out by God, and we spoke before about 
how how King David was like a man of war. He was his his kingdom was characterized by a lot of strife and division and conflict and fighting and violence, um, and how King Solomon uh, had none of that. Like King Solomon presided over a period of peace and prosperity, and how the the king the temple is a, a a place of reconciliation between us and God, a place of peace, and so how it was more fitting for God to choose the building of the temple during the time of King Solomon rather than the time of King David, but he. Uh, like rewarded King David for his desire because as we see many other times, the people were much more likely to focus on their own prosperity, um, on their own uh, problems, on their own goals and neglect the house of God. Whereas King David thought to himself, no, like why is it that we are living in these houses and you know, King David himself was living in his own palace uh, and, and the, the house of God was still a tent right and this is why we see king solomon the order that he built things when he became king is he first built the house of god and then he built his own house right which sets th sets the priority so here king solomon is remembering and he's giving credit to his father he is not taking this credit on himself saying i am the one who has you know decided that we will build the house of god and like to take all of the praise he says no actually my father david he is the one who wanted to build the house and God is the one who told him to wait, that it should be done in my time. So it's kind of like instead of taking this credit on himself, saying it was me, I was the architect of all of this. No, he, he placed the, the kind of the, the credit to God and, and to his father rather than um, to himself. So now that the temple is built, okay, there was a permanent place now for God to dwell among the people. And this should bring, in, in, in their minds, this should bring them comfort. Like God is present. After seeing the Shekinah, the appearance of God in the temple, it should bring them comfort. Like we know that God is with us. God is present with us. Just as before, when the people were wandering in the wilderness and God would lead them by the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire at night. And so they would always see that God is present with us. And the reason that this was happening at the time was out of need, out of necessity, right? Like the people were in the wilderness. They didn't know where they were going. The only way that they could move from place to place is for God to lead them. The only way that they could eat was from the manna coming from heaven. The only way they could do drink is from the water coming from the rock. All of these things reminded them constantly of pres the presence of God with them all the time because they lived in constant need, right? They lived in constant need. And because they were always in need, they always saw God as the Savior. They always saw him as the one who provides, right? Whereas when we establish a civilization, a system of laws, um, all of the things that come with having an established country, people begin to feel like, well, maybe God is not as present, right? Like, who is it who's providing me my food? Well, it's not God bringing me manna from heaven maybe it's the grocery store is providing me my food who is it like g giving me the things that i need is it god oh no maybe it's my employer who's paying me a salary because of the job that i do and not only that but i feel like i've earned i've earned it right because i work and now that i work i earn a salary and so it's like i'm taking care of myself i'm providing for myself you know we always talk about each person should provide for themselves and that's true even saint paul whenever he was speaking to the thessalonians who had kind of dropped everything waiting for the end of the world to come he told them no he who does not work shall not eat right so everyone is to work 
But what is the mentality? Is the mentality that I'm providing for myself, that everything I'm doing, I attribute to my own hand, right? No, in, in the Israelites, at the very beginning, when they were wandering in the wilderness, they could see very clearly that there was nothing they are providing for themselves, but God is providing all. Unfortunately, and this is true of us as well, after some time when things look up and things are more established and things are not as, you know, like chaotic um, and everything seems to be, you know, functioning smoothly, maybe we tend to forget that God is actually the one providing for us these things. And we are thinking, no, we are providing it ourselves, to ourselves, right? And so this is also what's going to happen to the Israelites. And as we spoke about how uh, King Solomon himself, though being the wisest king that ever lived, over time, he's going to begin to forget everything that God has done. And he's going to become attracted to um, these um, pagan women who are going to lead him away from God because he starts to make compromises, right? So this is why God allows many times adversity to remind us of our need of him. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel <coughs> and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. So now he's giving glorification to God for all that is happening and all that God has done for them. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. God did what he said he would do. And this is always important to go back and whenever we see like what is it that God promised and how is it that God fulfilled the promise and we find that God always fulfills the promises and certainly in the Old Testament everything that God promised he fulfilled now the fulfillment though doesn't necessarily happen in the time that the people expected it to or in the way that people expected it to and certainly there were many generations of people who were waiting for God to fulfill certain promises that didn't happen. We spoke before about Abraham himself, who was the one with whom the original covenant was made, where God told him, your children will be like the sand of the seashore. And yet during his lifetime, he didn't see it. He didn't see the, the answer to this promise. He, he, his children were not like the sand of the seashore by the time that he died. But it was something that God had um, promised him that it would come. When, when it would come, we don't know right here all of this is being fulfilled all this covenant that god had made originally to abraham is being fulfilled in the establishment of the nation of israel right these are all the people from the loins of abraham all the people that god had promised so many so many years ago and now it is all being fulfilled um in in, in ecclesiastes it speaks about how no one knows the work of god from beginning to end right there is no one who is able to perceive or understand what God has in his mind at the beginning of something. If you go all the way back to the very beginning, to the Garden of Eden, when, um, when, when God is speaking to the serpent, and he's saying the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Okay, Who understood what that meant at the time? What does it mean that the, the, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent? Of course, we understand it to be the seed, the descendant of the woman, who is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is going to crush the enemy, who is the devil, and he is going to conquer death and overcome death. But who could have known that then, right? 
who could have perceived it then? And even if someone believed it then, how long did they have to wait for that to actually happen, right? Happened so, so long. But this is the way that God operates on time scales that maybe are beyond us. And he just says to all those people in these intermediate stages, just trust me. Just trust that I'm, I know what I'm doing. Um, you know, I don't need your help. Um, just trust me to do what it is that I said I would do. And certainly here we see one of the fulfillments um, of this promise. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk before me as you have walked before me. So what is it that God had promised David? He said that if you remain faithful and all of your descendants remain faithful, then essentially your lineage, your descendants will always be the kings of Israel. Okay, they will always be on the throne of Israel. So again, King Solomon here believes that what God said is true. And King Solomon is saying, I have built you your house. I have been faithful to you. And he is reminding God of this promise. And this idea of reminding God, um, and actually a lot of times uh, in our prayers, we, we say even in the liturgical prayers, we tell God, remember. Like, remember something. Remember what it is that you know, you have said. And when we say remember, it doesn't mean that God has forgotten. Like, it's not like, it's not like he doesn't remember, right? We are really the ones remembering, right? We are remembering, and we're saying, God, remember, like, with us. Like, we all remember. What is it you have promised, and what is it that you have said? And so we are asking you to keep your promise. We're asking you to fulfill what is it you have said. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. This is like a profound statement that King Solomon is making here. And it really demonstrates his understanding of like the, uh, the, like the, the infiniteness of God. Okay, Vastly different from the pagan viewpoint of, of divinity. Okay, here he's saying, how is it that God can dwell on earth? Is God really dwelling in this temple, right? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. Heaven itself cannot contain you. How is it that you are going to live and dwell in this small temple that I have built? Okay, so here King Solomon is demonstrating a, a sense of understanding of, of the scale of God, right? All the other religions, or all the other pagan, the pagans, and all their belief in all these other gods, they really confined in their mind what they believed God to be. Like God, God was an idol, uh, or a set of idols. God was uh, some natural phenomena, like the sun or the moon, or you know something like that. God, God was. There's a God of each thing. There's a God of this, and there's a God of that, and there's a God of that. In every way. Whatever gods they conceived of were limited, right? They were limited in some way. Even if you, even poly, like polytheism in general is limited. Why? Because you're saying one god is not enough. You have uh, more than one god, and each of those gods is limited, right? They are limited in some way. Um, whereas when in when in the, the Christian God, right, he is unlimited. He is unlimited. He is not limited by the creation because he created all things, right? 
he 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 appears to us in many ways like he manifests himself in many ways but he is not limited by those things right and he doesn't dwell in statues right and and when he gave the 10 commandments and, and he told the people do, do not make any graven image of me do not make any carved image meaning do not try to worship me through Id idols don't try to worship me through physical objects because i am not in those objects like i am not the object i am the pantocrator i am the almighty so here king solomon is like bringing to his mind this idea that god is not limited which means that god is in the temple yes but god is also outside the temple right god is in all places with us at all times right and so god is without restriction without limitation and when we ask of him for something we we should believe and have faith that he is able to do above and beyond even what we ask right the reason that things don't maybe happen when we ask god for them because maybe this is one of the reasons we implicitly begin to perceive of god as being limited is because i see suffering I see persecution, I see like people that, you know, are my enemies that harass me and bother me and I and I ask God to deliver me from them and it doesn't happen. And so maybe implicitly just by observing the world, the suffering that's in the world and the suffering in my own life, implicitly I begin to think like God is limited. Where is he? Like why is he not acting? And 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 it could be maybe because God is limited in his power, like he's not able to do, or maybe God is limited in his love in his goodness like he doesn't care like yeah he has the ability to do but he he's not interested in doing or maybe i think well i, I god is punishing me like because i'm uh, he, he 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 sees me like he, he doesn't want to give me good things because he's punishing me for something that i have done it's also another reason why many people come and they, they're trying to make like to understand the reason for the suffering that they experience and say well Maybe because I'm being punished. Maybe because I, I didn't do something good or I did something bad. But actually when God himself reveals the reason why he allows things to happen in the world, oftentimes, well, it's definitely not a limitation of power. It's definitely not a limitation of love. Yes, there are times where God brings calamities on people because of their sin, but that doesn't mean that that's the majority of the time, right? Most of the time, it's because... God is working in something beyond my comprehension. He is doing something that I can't understand. And so I don't understand like the reasons why things are happening because I don't understand the plan. What are the specifics of that plan? And, and so because I don't understand the specifics of the plan, I don't understand the details. And God doesn't reveal those things. That's why, again, he comes and says, trust me, like have faith, believe that what I'm working for is for your good. And there are certain times where maybe God expresses it. So, for instance, when St. Paul is asking God to remove the thorn in his side, right, which we believe is some kind of disease that St. Paul had, something that was um, preventing him from ministering and serving to his full potential. And he asked God to remove it from him, and God specifically said, no, I will not remove it. So what was the reason? Was it because God wasn't able to remove it? No, he was able. Was it because God didn't love St. Paul? No, obviously he loved St. Paul very much, right? Was it because God was punishing St. Paul? No, he wasn't punishing him for anything. Maybe out of all the people in the world, St. Paul was like the greatest servant of God that ever lived, okay? So what was the reason? Well, God revealed that the reason was is that if St. Paul didn't feel some kind of suffering, then he would become so full of pride right, 
that, that, that maybe he would fall into what King Solomon is going to fall into, to leave God altogether, right? And he said, what well, my strength is made perfect in weakness, meaning you want to be your full potential, right? And, and, King, and, and St. Paul himself said, lest I be like puffed up because of all of the visions I had seen, because St. Paul has saw a vision of heaven, right? So he said, lest I become so puffed up with, with all that God is working in my life, that God allowed this thorn to humble me, to make me feel weak, so that I always feel that I am in need of him and that I am not anything great on my own. So God revealed in this case his motive, why he is not allowing St. Paul to be healed of this thorn, which unless God had revealed, maybe all of us would be questioning. Like, why? what is the reason? You know. So just as God would do with St. Paul, so he does with us, right? Whether that be the reason or other reasons, or things that God wants us to learn, or, or things that God is doing to help other people, or whatever the case might be. Sometimes we figure it out, sometimes we don't. The, the point is, is that God cannot be contained, right? He, is, he cannot be contained even in our own mind to be able to fathom the depth of what he is doing. Um, I've, I might have shared with you before, and I don't remember which of the saints it was, but one of the saints, um, he had this, this dream, and in the dream, there was this child on the seashore that was trying to take the water of the ocean and to put it like in a bucket, right? And he kept trying to take the water of the ocean, putting it in a bucket. And then the saint came up and he's like, you will never be able to put the entire ocean right into the bucket, right? And then the child responded and said, this is what you try to do when you try to fully fathom God in your mind and you try to understand him in your mind, right? which is kind of like, it's, it's, very, it's very true, right? Who of us can understand God? Like, who of us can know him? All we know of him is what he reveals to us. And he reveals to us his character. He reveals to us his motives. But he doesn't reveal to us the plan. He tells us bits and pieces of it. He shows us things here and there. Even when he speaks about, like, the, the revelation, the future, what is going to happen at the end of the world, he does it in such a, a cryptic way that we can't really point at it and be like, this is what I know exactly is going to happen, and this is how it's going to happen. No, he says it in this kind of general way. He says, these are the kinds of things you should expect, so be ready. The reason he even tells us about it as all, at all is not so that we can know, but it's so that we can be ready so that we can be prepared for it, so we can realize that what is to come, there is a big challenge to come. We have to be ready for that challenge now. He's telling us about the future, so how is it we can live today? This is why people who are like obsessed with trying to tell what the future is, like that's not the whole reason even why God gave it to us. He didn't give it to us so we can know the future. He gave it to us so that we know how to live now, right? How is it that I need to live now to prepare for something? Something that is very like tumultuous and difficult that is going to happen. God is beyond our understanding. And the only thing we know of him is what he tells us about himself and what he wants us to know about himself. Everything else, it's just trust me, just believe, just have faith, right? And, and in those people who were, have been able to trust and believe and have faith, those are the people that have gone the furthest in their relationship with God, have gone the deepest in their spiritual life because they're the ones who live completely trusting and surrendering their will to God and God does amazing things with them. Whereas those of us who are always questioning, always pushing, always demanding answers, refusing to move until we have enough evidence, we are the ones maybe who are the least content and the ones that God is still trying to make us to reach that full potential that we have and we are struggling against him. So here King Solomon understood. Yes, this is your house. 
but this is not a limitation for you. How is it that you can dwell in a house made by a man? Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication. O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. So he's telling God, always be present with your people and always be listening to our prayers so that when we come and stand before you and pray, that you will hear, you will hear us. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive, right? This temple was a place of forgiveness, right? which implicitly means that the people will be sinning, right? That the people are going to be sinning. The people are not going to be able to follow God as they should. Yet God is leaving the door open to them so that they can come at any time, seek his forgiveness, seek reconciliation with him, and they will find reconciliation. They will, they will, they, they, it is not the case that when someone fails that they will forever stay in the state of failure and they can never get up from it and they can never like, keep walking. No, they will, they will get up. God will grant them that they will be forgiven. And that is the place that this house of God represents. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head, and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. What does that mean? When someone is accused of wrongdoing, Okay, so in this example, he's saying when someone sins against his neighbor, okay, and, and, you know, and then he comes to the temple because God is the judge, saying someone, someone sins against his neighbor, and then he comes to this temple, and then he, he, like, he, he makes a testimony, okay, and he says, here is what I have done. You know, you have two parties, each one, you know, maybe claiming that they are the one who is innocent and the other one is guilty. And God is here going to judge between them. They come to the temple. They make an oath. Each person makes an oath before God, declaring what they actually have done. Right? And then he's saying, God, here in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head, and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. So it means that God is the one who will judge the, the, the righteous and the wicked. And God will bring to the righteous what they deserve, and to the wicked what they deserve. And that, that judgment doesn't necessarily translate into an immediate consequence that's visible by people in the moment, right? In that moment. It doesn't necessarily translate into that. Because sometimes we who, as believers who are, let's say, persecuted or mistreated, wronged in some way, we don't necessarily find that God is going to swoop in and he's going to bring condemnation to the wicked instantly and that everything is fine, right? We don't see that a lot of times. We don't see that. But what he's saying is, is there will be ultimate justice. And again, God operates on his time scales. When will that ultimate justice happen? Is it going to happen in my lifetime? Is it going to happen only when that person dies? Uh, how is it going to happen? I don't know. I don't know. God is the judge and the judge is the one who sentences. He's the one who decides what sentence is appropriate in each case. So we come before God, God sees. You know, like the Bible says that we are naked before him. 
Like there's nothing we can hide. There's nothing we can pretend. There's no face we can put on, no mask, nothing we can do to prevent God from seeing us as we truly are, right? So so God sees and God is the judge. And this so this temple also was a reminder to the people of God's judgment that he is the judge. He is the just judge. He is the one who judges. Even though we might be able to fool human beings, even though we might be able to pretend to be something that we're not to human beings, even though we might be able to hide who we are to human beings, we cannot do so with God. And he looks and sees. This is why we, we are called to repent. Because our repentance is before God. It is not to any person. Our repentance is before God first and foremost. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. So you start to see that some of these warnings are getting pretty specific, right? Like this doesn't sound like some just general, if this were to happen. It, it starts to sound like when. When your people, Israel, are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you. Like this is going to happen. God is telling them ahead of time. This is a prophecy, right? Like he's telling them, when your people are defeated because of their sin and they come back, okay, and they pray and they make supplication in this place, okay, here in heaven, forgive the sin of your people and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. Bring them back to their land. Like it's almost saying, like, yeah, because of the sin, we are going to be driven from the land. And of course, we know this is what is going to happen. You know, the kingdom of Judah, they're going to be conquered, sent to exile to Babylon. Eventually, yes, they will come back. They will rebuild the temple that was destroyed, and they will pray again. But all of this, it's like in a prophetic way, King Solomon is saying, here is what is going to happen in the future. That even though here we are now, and that you've brought us to this place, and maybe at this point in the kingdom and the history of Israel, they are the strongest that they have ever been. The strongest that they have ever been. They have conquered all the nations around them. Everyone is afraid of them. They are so wealthy and powerful. Like they have such influence in the world. They are like the strongest that they've ever been. And yet even now, King Solomon, he's saying this. He's saying, when we sin against you and you exile us and you, 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 you know, uh, and, and, and we are brought back to the land, right? Like allow us to come back to the land after we, after we, we, we offer repentance. Allow us to come back again. Forgive our sins. Here and here are supplications and prayers that we make to you in this place. So again, this temple is like a doorway between heaven and earth. Okay, you want God to hear you come to this place and speak. This is the place where God will hear, right? And of course, now in the New Testament, of course, we have the church, which is also a doorway between heaven and earth. Like we said, the church is consecrated to the service of God. But also, what else is the temple is each of us. As temples of the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, when we pray, God listens. God hears our prayer because we are temples of the Holy Spirit. So our prayers, just like here, the temple in the Old Testament, uh, God is hearing our, our supplications. God is restoring us when we turn to him. The question is, is, do we ask him? Do we go to him? Do we repent or not? Right? He, he, he will restore us um, back again. 
When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on the land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Again, this is like very prophetic. Like we know that there's going to be a period of drought, right? It's going to come in the time of Elijah the prophet. Elijah the prophet. Right. So like, again, like King Solomon is he's this is the wisdom of Solomon. Right. Like God has given him this wisdom to know even what is going to happen. Right. And it, and it's written down really for the benefit of the people, for them to know that no matter how far away they stray from God, that they are able to return again. When the prodigal son, he strayed to the maximum. He took all that was his father's and he wasted it all. And in a life of sin, when he was at his lowest point, the thing that he had wor going for him, the thing that saved him in the end, was that he knew that he could go back again. That was the one thing he had. He didn't have anything except the knowledge that if he will return to his father's house, his father would accept him. And this is here what King Solomon is saying. He's saying, however far we stray away from you as a people, but always let us to know that, that we can always return that you will not reject us when we return. You will accept us even when we have no, like, we are unworthy of acceptance. Okay? Accept us again. When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all pe your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward the temple. This is beautiful where he says, when each one knows the plague of his own heart. Because when we are suffering for some reason our attention goes to the the external circumstance that we want to change right the external sickness the external problem the external thing that we want like all our focus focuses there and maybe all our prayers also focus there asking god to accomplish for us what it is that we want to save us from our enemies to give us the desires of our heart all of those things and here, King Solomon, obviously, he's listing all of these things. He's saying famine, pestilence, blight, mildew, locusts, grasshoppers. But then when he says what, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people, Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart, meaning what is really the problem is not the external plague, but it is the internal plague. The internal plague is the reason for the real suffering that we have as human beings. It is not the external plague. The external plague can harm us physically, right? But the internal plague can harm us spiritually. Even like in, in the scripture where it says, do not fear man who can only kill the body, but fear God who after killing the body can do what? Can cast you into hell. This is what it says, right? Like like we we focus so much on the fear of the of 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 the physical harm right the fear of the people who could physically harm us the physical world and all the suffering that can come from it we spend so much time on these plagues and call them plagues here right but then he says the the thing you really need to fear right is the internal plague the internal plague by which we will be judged 
right? This is the thing that should stir us, should stir us to repentance, should stir us to like like reevaluate our lives. What is how is it that I should be spending my life? Is the way that I'm walking leading me to the direction that I should go, or is it not? Okay, so. The contingency here for God to hear the prayers of the people was not just that they were acutely aware of the external plagues that they are suffering from, but they are aware of the internal plagues. And those internal internal plagues are actually the reason why Israel experienced so much suffering. If you look in the book of Judges, of course the book of Judges was before this, but in the book of Judges, the people constantly kept sinning against God and then asking God to save them again. And then after they're saved to sin again, ask God to save them again. And it happened over and over and over so many times, right? So what was the reason of those external plagues, right, that God would send actually to save them from them from themselves, from their internal plagues? So if they didn't have the internal plagues, which was the sin that they committed against God, then God would never have sent people to, um, to, 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 to take them captive, to destroy them, to whatever, and then, and then to have them come back to him. No, if they actually stayed good from the beginning, if they didn't fall into this cycle, God would never allow the Philistines to destroy them. He would have never allowed these other nations to conquer them because they would be at peace with him. And again, the reason he allowed that conquering was not because of spite or anger. He, uh, he, he did it because they needed it. It was the thorn that they needed to have so that they would turn away from these, like, these, these, this internal sickness and realize that they needed the great physician to heal. Then, hear in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive and act, and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Okay, so again, this is a place where God hears right here here from in, in heaven right and forgive and act and give to everyone according to um, all his ways right and again this is the church the church is the place where the people come to commune with god confess their sins and also each of us as temples of the holy spirit that god will hear us moreover concerning a foreigner who is not of your people israel but has come from a far country for your name's sake for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this temple. Hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. Meaning, do not only hear the prayers of Israel, but hear the prayers of the whole world. Okay? And as we said before, the construction of the temple was a joint project between the Israelites and the Gentiles. Those Gentiles, like Hiram, the king of Tyre um, from Syria, right? He participated in this. Many different nations participated, okay? As though, again, God is saying, this temple is not just a place of reconciliation between me and the Jewish people, but between me and the whole earth. And here explicitly, Right? He's saying when the foreigner also comes and stands here before this temple and prays. Because now the knowledge of this temple would now be well known in the whole world. Because many different nations participated in its construction. Right, So it would be known now that this is here and what this is. Even like an act like this Shekinah 
the presence of God in the temple, when this were to happen, the word of this would also spread to many places. So people would, would understand that, hey, this temple is like, there's something special about this temple, right? That God is present here in this temple, and that even the foreigner is accepted, that whenever they would hear this, they would say, even I as a foreigner can come and pray before the temple. And certainly this is fulfilled in us, because we are the Gentiles, right? We are the Gentiles whom God has accepted to be his children, Right, and that we also come before God, and and in in His temple, and we pray, and He hears our prayers. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. So He's saying what? Not only the people who are physically here, right? Not only the people who are physically here at the temple, but even the people who go out to battle against their enemy wherever you send them. What is it that they would do? They would pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built. Okay? Then again, hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. So again, you see Solomon's understanding of God's presence in all places. It's very different than the pagan understanding where... They would go to war, and what is it they would bring with them to war? They would bring with them their god of war, the idol of their god of war. And they felt like this was necessary. Also, prior to this, the Hebrews were doing the same thing with the Ark of the Covenant. They want to go to war, they would take the Ark of the Covenant with them, which again was not the intention of the Ark of the Covenant to be taken and used in that way. But here, King Solomon, in faith, he is saying, no, even if we are far from the temple, even if we are far from this place, then we remember the presence of God and we remember the temple and we remember God's nature and we can pray and we believe that even there God will hear us when they sin against you for there is no one who does not sin and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy and they take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, we have sinned and done wrong, we have committed wickedness. What is it that he's saying? What is he referring to almost exactly? When is this going to happen? Huh? The Babylonian captivity. Okay? Because God became angry with them, he delivered them into the hands of their enemy. They, they went captive into the enemy, okay, far away. But what? When they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent, then even then God will hear. Even there God will hear. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you, and grant them compassion before those who took them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt out of the iron furnace. They're saying, what? Even though your people are not physically here, they are still your people even if they are spread out all over the earth, okay, they are still your people. 
that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you. So again, whenever they repent, no matter where they are, God will hear the prayer of those people. They are still your people, okay, from, from now and forever. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance, as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Okay, who is the famous person that we know in exile who did what King Solomon said? And he actually got in trouble for it. Hmm? You know, he's famous. Joshua? Joshua was not in exile. Who's in exile? Daniel. Okay. What is it that Daniel did and got him in trouble? Yes. So it says this is in Daniel chapter 6. It says, And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. And so you wonder, like, why was he doing that? And why did he look toward Jerusalem? Well, specifically here, because King Solomon said, when anyone in any place in the world, right, they pray toward this city and this temple that I have built, then God will hear from heaven and, 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 and he will answer their prayers and supplications. So this was, King, this was Daniel's um, custom, is that he would always pray toward Jerusalem. And again, it shows the faith of Daniel. Why? Why is that even extra, like even more than what King Solomon is saying? Why is that? Okay, so definitely because he was going to get in trouble because he was specifically told not to. But why else? Where was the temple? Was it? It was destroyed. It was destroyed. So at that point in time, Daniel was looking toward a city that was destroyed and a temple that was destroyed. And he was still believed that God could hear him, right? Just as you could see also what King Solomon said. He said, there is no house that I could build that would contain you. The heaven of heavens themselves cannot contain you. So you see that the, the measure of faith that's being expressed here is not the typical kind of faith that you find in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, everything is about physical objects. Everything is about proximity. You know, it's like my senses. If I can perceive it with my senses, then I believe. The moment that Moses went up on the mountain for 40 days to receive the Ten Commandments, the people were like, we don't know where Moses is. Let's make a golden calf and worship it. Because even Moses himself, in the mind of the people, was like a representative of God. And when Moses was gone, it's like God was gone. We don't know where he is. We got to get something to be God to us. So how we'll make this golden calf and then we'll feel like God is with us, right? This was the problem, right? Everybody there, they struggled to believe by faith. Everything was by senses only. They didn't really understand what King Solomon was saying, that God is in all places, right? So Solomon understood, Daniel understood. And of course, in the New Testament, right, this is how we all believe God to be. God is not localized in one place. God is in all places, and God is in all of us, right? 
and we believe that he is spirit, right? And even though our senses do not tell us necessarily that he is present in this moment, right? But we believe he is present in this moment, right? And so when we offer prayer to God, we believe that he hears us, not because we look in a certain direction, right? Not even because we use audible words, not because we see apparitions and miracles, but we believe that he is present because he says that he is, and we believe in him. Just as Daniel, knowing that the, the temple was destroyed, he still looked in that direction, and he still prayed, and he still believed. And we know, of course, that God answered his prayer, and God revealed to him like the 70 years that they're going to be in exile and that they're going to return again. So like, obviously, Daniel's prayer um, was, uh, was answered. This is what Daniel said um, when he was praying for restoration of Israel. Okay, this is in Daniel chapter 9. He said, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant, and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Desolate, because it's destroyed. <coughs> oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations <coughs> and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Notice that he even used all the same words that King Solomon said. He spoke about hearing, listening, uh, acting, hearing, uh, the, the incline your ear. Uh, all of these things, like prayers and supplications, like all of the same exact words that King Solomon used here in the dedication of the temple is the same words. And he said this even while he is praying to God at a time when the sanctuary is desolate, right? So again, you see the depth of faith of Daniel and, and King Solomon as well, that God is in all places. God is not just localized in Jerusalem or the temple or any one place. <coughs> and so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord that he rose, he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. Then he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. So again, God is fulfilling covenant, fulfilling promises that he had made for generations. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers. Again, the role of the people is we are always responding to God's love. God is showing us, hey, I'm with you. Hey, in my incarnation, I am, I am with you. I'm, 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 I'm taking steps to be with you and then in response the people says we accept this like we want we want you to be with us and we want to follow you we want you to be our king we want to be your children 
we will follow your commandments and your statutes and your judgments, right? So God does this act of, of love and demonstrating his presence with the people. The people say, yes, we, we accept you. And, and the way we accept you is by following you and what you tell us to do. And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day may require, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. All the people of the earth, right? So he's, he's, he's appealing to all the people. All the people will know, not just the Jewish people. Let your heart, therefore, be loyal to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as it is this day. Then the king and all the Israel and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. This is a huge amount of sheep. I mean, maybe it's rounded. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 120,000, right? This is like a real dedication, right? Like real, like these are, these people are taking this event as being like a once in a lifetime, once in a, in, a, in, a, in a century type event that is happening. Like this isn't, like no one here is gonna be like, is gonna miss out on this, right? Everyone, every single person is gonna come to this, right? <coughs> and, 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 you know, you could have said there was many reasons why you didn't have to do 120,000. Like, God never told them to do 120,000. They could have done 10,000. You know, 10,000 probably everyone was like, yeah, that's good. 10,000 is good. You know, like, I think that's enough. It's hard enough to do 10,000 or 20,000, right? But here he's saying what I, I, I'm, I'm, giving, I'm giving above and beyond, like, like anything that could be given to anyone. Right. Like you, you, you wouldn't offer this to anyone else. Only God would you offer this. And, and we unfortunately are the opposite. We are like we offer better things to other people and to God we offer the minimum. Whereas here King Solomon is like, I'm offering to you higher and better than I would offer to anyone, to any king, to any authority, to any person. I'm giving you above and beyond what could be conceived. OK. And it reminded me of this verse in Malachi chapter one. This is where God is rebuking the people and he's telling them what you're offering to me is deficient. Okay, and this is what he says. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to us, while this is being done by your hands. Will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Right? So he's saying the, the, the people are offering <coughs> like the worst of what they have. They're offering the things that 
are worthless. The things that they couldn't use themselves anyway. And so they're like, well, we might as well give it to God because we don't have any other use for it. We're just going to give it to him. And then while they're saying this, okay, and so, so then he gives the example, w would you give this to your governor? Like, is this something you would offer your boss at work? Is this something you would give to the president, right, of your nation? Would you offer to him this? Or would you offer to him something better than this? And then they say what? While they are doing this, they are saying, entreat, entreat God, entreat God's favor, so he will be gracious to us. And in what way are we going to entreat God's favor and expect that God is going to respond positively and give us his favor when the things that we offer to him are so deficient, right? So this is like the two extreme examples that you can see, okay? King Solomon's example is, I will offer to you God above and beyond what has ever been offered to anyone in human history. This is what King Solomon did. But what's mentioned in Malachi is, <coughs> uh, whatever I have lying around, you know, that's what I will give to God, right? And if we try to think of this in our own life, how is it I can apply this, is which of these two are we closer to? Do we, with God, we say, you know what? I am going to offer to him greater than what I offer to anyone. Greater than what I offer to my boss at work. Greater to what, than what I offer to my parents. Greater than what I offer to my friends. I will, my, my responsibility, my commitment, my dedication to God is greater than all of those things combined. Or is it the opposite? Maybe I'm offering to all of these other people the best of me. The best of my time. The best of my mind. The best of my offering. And when it comes to God, he gets the scraps that are left over. Right? And this is the dichotomy here. This is the two examples that we see and the way that God responds. Because he's saying in Malachi, he's saying, as you are offering these maimed and lame and blind animals, you are thinking that you are entreating my favor. You think that I'm going to respond favorably to you by doing this. But then compare that to what King Solomon is doing. Right? King Solomon, he is offering from his heart. He is not offering this because he was forced to offer it because he was told to offer it. He offered it completely voluntarily from himself, right? So, so the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. On the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord, for there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. So the bronze altar, which was the place that was made to offer, was so small, it was too small to offer all the sacrifices that King Solomon wanted to offer, so he just offered it in the middle of the court, and he consecrated the court so he could offer more sacrifices there, right? Like it was like he didn't even use that as kind of like an excuse to offer less. Like we could have all justified. It's like we don't even have space to offer 120,000 sheep. Like where where are you gonna even do and it's like oh no 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 we have more space. We'll just use this place and this place. We'll we'll offer sheep everywhere. Everywhere you can imagine there's gonna be sheep. You know that we're gonna offer it to God. At that time Solomon held a feast and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God, seven days and seven more days, fourteen days. Okay, so this feast, the feast where they they offered all of these um, offerings, okay? On the eighth day he sent the people away <coughs> and the blessing, and they blessed the king and went to their tents joyful <coughs> and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people. 
So this feast lasted 14 days. The, 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 the first seven days were the, the dedication of the temple. The, the second seven days was the feast of the tabernacles. Okay, And then the eighth day, which is the day after the feast of the tabernacles, is all of the people departed. This is an example here of all of the people, their life revolves around God. So you know what? For 14 days, we're not going to do anything. We're not going to do anything else. We're just going to come to the temple. We're going to offer sacrifices. We're going to worship God, right? And, and, and then it says about them what, right? It says that they went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done, right? Like, like the more we really, like, again, we're dedicating the temple, which is in us, to God. The temple that is in us, in which the Holy Spirit dwells, are we offering the sheep? Like, are we, are we, are we consecrating it? Are we dedicating it? Are we making it to be like this celebration that is in us because of the way we are choosing to live our lives to God? Are we focusing our life on him and that everything else is kind of like a side matter? Or is God just like one thing in my list of things? And this is like a very different way of living. Some people, it's like, okay, what are all my things? You know, I got my work, I got my family, I got my hobbies, I got my this, my finances, I got this. And God is one thing on the list. Like, he's, he's not, it's not absent. He's there on the list. Maybe on Sunday mornings, sometimes. Right? He's there on the list. as one of the things that I'm trying to fit in my list of things. That's a priority for me. Okay? Whereas the way you see that the people uh, in the Old Testament lived... And you see this also a lot more like in Egypt, for instance, okay? God is like, like, don't, it's not a list. God is like the center and everything revolves around him. And if there's no time for some of those other things, well, it's okay, because God is the center, right? Like the question that I, like, that I would ask and really the two questions. The first question has to go do with the, the verse in Malachi. It's like, would you offer it to your governor? How do I know if I'm offering something to God that is, of the right standard and of the right way, ask yourselves, like, well, what would you do if your boss asked you for it, right? What would you do if your boss asked you for it? Would you do it just because he asked you and you need to do it, right? What if God comes and asks you for it? What if the church comes and asks you for it? What if you something is asked of you? Are you going to try to get out of it? What are you going to offer? Are you going to be the first one? Or are you going to be the last one? Again, how do you compare that to your governor, right, quote, unquote? The second thing is, like in terms of like the revolving around it, right? That my life revolves around it. Sometimes people will come and say, you know what? I can't come and attend because I have X, Y, Z. Okay. And I'm not trying to say that there are no reasons why I can miss something in the church. I I'm not trying to say that. There's exceptions to everything. Okay. But sometimes we hear excuses that are made repeatedly. Um, and always of the form of, well, something else is of higher priority than this, right? It's like, no, I can't attend this meeting. I can't attend the service. I can't do this. Well, why? Well, because I have activity one, two, three, four. Because I have this and that. Okay, well, okay. I'm not going to argue with you, right? And, I, and, and I'm not here to audit you by any means, okay? But I will, I will say that we ask ourselves and I ask myself because I'm also guilty of this. I ask myself, which is it? 
Is it that I should cancel my plans in order to be in the house of God or that I cancel what's in the house of God in order to pursue my plans? Which of the two sounds right? Which of the two sounds like it's what we should be doing? Because obviously there's times where we can't do both. And I think that's the fallacy that we try to live with is that we try to do both. And if we can't do both and we have to decide how do I decide based on what criteria do I decide and and here again we see these people left their entire life for two weeks in order they can come and offer 120,000 sheep right as opposed to the other people that it's like yeah we don't want to offer 120,000 we're, we're just going to offer the lame sheep that is going to die anyway we're going to just offer that one and yes these are two extreme images and I know that life is not as black and white as this but I will say that it's something for us to keep in mind, right, of how I'm approaching my spiritual life. Even when it comes to my spiritual life in terms of, like, prayer. Like, sometimes we, you know, I don't have time to pray. Why? Well, because I, I have all these things. It's like, well, why don't you cancel those things? If you can't do both, then you can only do one. And if you can only do one, you got to pick the one that's more important. So if you pick the one, then that's what's more important to you by definition right because if if you're invited to two parties at the same time then which one are you going to go to the one you want to go to more i mean that seems pretty much like what most people would do you're going to go to the one that you want to go to more right so when we're when we're given two options the one that we choose is a reflection of who i am and again i'm not trying to judge anyone um and I'm not trying to say that we can reach perfection. But I will say that this is a part of our spiritual growth. Part of our spiritual growth is to, is to examine and say, how is it that I'm using my time? And if I find myself using words like I can't, then there starts to be a problem. We talked about this in the topic about I ask that you have me excused. We like to paint ourselves as being victims of our circumstances. That it's not that I'm making a choice no, it's that I can't. It's like I can't pray today because I have a work function. Well, it's not that you can't. It's that you choose not to, right? You're making a choice. You're not a slave. Uh, people coming and forcing, enslaving you, telling you how you have to live your life. No, you are choosing to live your life a certain way. Because as long as I am kind of uh, believing that my life is determined by my circumstances, that I'm constantly a slave of my circumstances. I'm a slave of, of, of what's happening around me. I'm a slave to the will of other people. I'm a slave to my own, you know, like 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 life that I that I feel like I'm a ba I'm taking a back seat. I can't choose anything in it. No, I can choose. I can choose. Okay, and I do choose. And that's why in the end, the choices are my responsibility. We God is not going to come to us and says, well, you know, you just you didn't have an option. You know, you just had to do that. No, he's not going to say you had to. He's going to say, you chose this. This is the path to life that, um, that you chose. Um, so anyway, I think one of the greatest things that impacted me about this chapter was the offering that King Solomon made completely voluntarily. And I pray that I and all of us together can also offer to God above and beyond even what we are asked because this is really demonstrates the true faith, the true love, just as Christ offered himself beyond what was ever even conceived of, 
the, the, the divinity becoming humanity, that there wasn't a single person who could have ever even uttered to ask such a thing that it even could exist, right? And he offered it to us, went above and beyond. So also, I, I, I pray that we can also go above and beyond in offering to him. And glory be to God forever. Amen. Any comments or questions? Okay, we can pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day, for this opportunity to stand here before you. I thank you, O Lord, because you open for us your word, and you help us to understand the things that you want us to, uh, to learn, the things that are lacking in us, the areas, O God, that we need more work. And we thank you, O Lord, for the example of King Solomon and his love and dedication for you, all the resources, all the time, all the energy that he put forth to build your house. We ask, O God, that you help us to put the same effort with the same zeal, with the same energy into building your house, whether it be the physical church or whether it be our souls and our spirits, the temples of the living God. We ask, O God, that you help us to commit enough time and enough effort and focus to prepare, O oh Lord, this temple that is in us so that it becomes a fitting place for you to dwell. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the community, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.